Here we are. This is the French Extremity Movement and my number three pick here for the best Christmas horror movie ever. It's a film called Inside. And there are spoilers from the off here, so please, I implore you, if you don't want this ruined for you, then please check the time codes and skip ahead. Be warned, though, before you go off and watch this one, if you're going to do that before you listen to it, you can do that. Don't worry. It should have trigger warnings for you though, both for pregnancy trauma, because that really is a thing in this, and animal abuse. Let's just say that, shall we? If ever there is a film that you should go in blind to though, it's this one. So, I'm not saying anything else, just go and watch it. Okay? You gone? Good. For the rest of us, hello. Alison Paradis is Sarah. Beatrice Dahl is La Femme, aka, with the English translation, wife and the setup is this we begin with a baby in utero and follow that up with a car crash and then like a four month later period sarah and her baby they've survived the crash but the dad hasn't then we move to christmas eve and before you watch this one when you look at the aesthetics of it you see oh it's 80 minutes long easy peasy well it doesn't help this movie can be hard work to those that aren't already briefed in the uh, French extremity movement. Let's just say that. For a story though, it's great. It's pretty simple too. There's a knock at the door late at night. A stranger knows Sarah's name and she wants to be let in. Later on that night, we see that Beatrice Dull's broken in. So what could be happening here? Now, for a job, Sarah is a photographer and an editor turns up late at night and he thinks Beatrice Dull is Sarah's mum. And when her real mum turns up, well, let's just say it's pretty heartbreaking. Then it's the turn of the police to turn up. And they turn up outside the house with a rioter in the back because this is set on the background of the Paris riots. They need to check up on Sarah too. And as an audience member, we just breathe a sigh of relief. Thank goodness, finally, the police are here to save the day. Right? No, it's more carnage. She disposes of the lot of them with guns and scissors. At 65 minutes in, Sarah has had enough and then decides to fight back. So, that's a detailed synopsis, but as well as this fantastic story, which has this cleverly detailed plotting, this film is all about the violence. Particularly nasty is the scissors over the baby bump and the stabbing through the belly button, the demise of Sarah's editor, which includes a groin stabbing, and at that point... The score screeches. It's a real change from what was previously going on with the score, but we'll get into that shortly. Uh, this is just flipping well brutal as hell. And just to show us how unhinged she is, Beatrice Dahl then breaks a cat's neck. It's all quite overwhelming, just as it should be at Christmas, right? This is Inside. 
And here's the letterbox synopsis. Four months after the death of her husband, a woman on the brink of motherhood is tormented in her home by a strange woman who wants her unborn baby. Okay, right. Here we have a welcome return from Dr. Miranda Cochran. She's author of Witchcraft, an Adolescent in American Popular Culture, and she is also a writer at Diabolique magazine. She is currently out in the USA researching another book as I speak to you right now. And from what she told me off air, in all honesty, just watch this space. It's going to be fantastic. I rarely get excited about new books coming out, but this one has me twitching. Uh, if you want to hit her up on Twitter, I'm not going to say anything else about it. I'm going to leave it at that. Um, but you can sort of guess, okay? If you follow her on Twitter, she is at Middle Aged Witch. That's her handle there. Uh, you can follow her adventures there. And from what she's posted, you can sort of piece it together. I think she's got to be sort of quiet about it. But my word, I'm really excited, as she is. Anyway. She was with us last on A Year in Horror for the 1967 episode and we covered my very favourite film of that year which was V, V-I-Y, V and I was just ever so grateful that she came up with a little bit of time in this mental schedule that she's got in the USA. So yeah, here we go. This is myself and Miranda. We go in bloody detail. This is Inside. Miranda, happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. I'm feeling I'm feeling very festive at the moment. <laughs> we've chosen a weird film here, but I'm so yes. glad that you have. So before we go into what we've actually chosen, do you partake in it? Do you like watching seasonal films? Oh yeah. I mean, like I generally think that, you know, horror movies are for for all all year round, not just for Halloween, you know. Much right. like a dog is is for life, not just for Christmas. Um horror movies are for all year, not just Halloween. So, I'm a big believer in watching like horror all year round, and I love I love seasonal horror. I like Christmas movies in general depending on the movie, you know. I've I've known to been known to get a bit teary at the the end of It's a Wonderful Life and things like that. So, I I generally quite like Christmas movies again depending on the movie um and I I like Christmas horror movies as well I think that there's something kind of nice about how almost incongruous it is you know the kind of like the sparkly fairy lights and then also you know murder and you know violence and all of that so I generally like that I like the kind of the subversion of what's expected are you the sort of person that will do a Netflix binge of just any old crap Christmas movies because I know they just big it up at that point no I, I like I do I like I have my standards I think you know like I said I like It's a Wonderful Life I like I um the Muppet Christmas Carol and Home Alone and stuff like that so um I like I generally go for the good ones I'm not a fan of like the you know the Hallmark ones or the the Netflix you know um productions really um but you know um, so yeah, I, I I like I like my Christmas horror as well. I always find it interesting when you see the directors of those films, and then every now and again they'll have one horror to their resume, and it will always <laughs> be like one that's really poorly rated, a two point one out. Of yeah, yeah. I think it's because a lot of these guys are just people who are you know 
like they're not auteurs they're you know they'll, they'll go where the work is which you know is understandable yeah I could see it I could see it mm-hmm. so it's a weird blend you've chosen inside yeah yeah really like I think it's, it's very different from a lot of Christmas horror movies yes. a lot of Christmas horror movies tend to be maybe slashers like Black Christmas for example or kind of weird fantasy things like gremlins or occasionally just like really trashy things like you know Silent Night Deadly Night and things like that so inside is kind of a like a weird one because it's actually just harrowing and difficult so yeah I went with the most gruesome one I could find but do you partake in like the French extremity stuff? Do you, did you ever get into it? Uh, I, I like it. Um, it depends. I mean, it's weird because it's a label, like it, it's not a coherent movement. The new French right. extremity isn't a coherent movement. It's not like a bunch of people got together and were like, hmm, maybe we should explore this seedy underbelly of French society using body horror and home invasions. It's just like a bunch of these films dealing with kind of similar themes uh, that were quite violent started to come out around the same time like the late 90s and early 2000s and the term was coined by a British critic um, who I think was using it quite dismissively because I think he wasn't quite a big you know he wasn't a big fan of like the the violence and the gore um, of those films but I generally like a lot of them. Um, I like Martyrs. I like um, High Tension, things like that. I like Trouble Every Day because um, I do love a good weird vampire cannibal film. Uh, so I, I like I, I generally find it kind of to be a kind of an interesting movement. Again, it's it's a label that's applied to a lot of things. So I probably don't like everything that falls under it. I, I have trouble with Irreversible. I'm, I'm not a big fan of that movie um, for, for many, many reasons. But for the most part, I found, you know, films that fall under that banner to be quite interesting. I pretty much 100% agree with you there because I also have that thing with Irreversible. There was one called Mama. Um, oh, yeah. That I couldn't I couldn't get with that. And I think mm. it might be because they're not horror ones. They're yeah. the ones that go extreme for, for other things. Yes. Yeah, yeah, Maybe. absolutely. Yeah, and like I, like I found the thing with Irreversible. I had to watch it again recently for, for something I was working on. And I just, I think maybe it was intentional on the director's part, but I found the protagonists in that film so, so vile. I mean, the the thing that people remember about the film is, you know, the really graphic rape scene, which is, God, it is hard to watch. But then the two protagonists, the the partner and the former partner of the woman who's raped, they go out to seek revenge and they just spend the entire time like throwing around all of these homophobic and racist slurs. And they're just the worst people. Um, and I get that that's kind of part of it, but I just, I just, I hate them both so much that it's, yeah, on top of the, the sexual violence, it just makes it so hard. And I, I kind of like, I know this is, I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but I find like the rape revenge subgenre really interesting. And, you know, Alexander Helen Nichols has that amazing um, yeah. book about rape revenge films, but I generally kind of tend to like the ones where, you know, a woman is assaulted and then she goes and takes revenge on her assailants herself. But in this one, it's these two guys, you know, going to get revenge on her behalf. And I just, I, I find like it takes a lot of her agency away and I just, yeah, I don't like it. Uh- <laughs> No, well, there's a lot that rubs me up the wrong way uh, about that film. Um, hmm. And it do- doesn't seem to end. <laughs> it doesn't. It just goes on. It, and which, you know, again, like I've seen, uh, there's a lot of other stuff by Gaspar Noe that I actually quite like and that I find like visually really interesting and thematically really interesting. Just irreversible annoys me and I just, I don't like it. 
Okay, what about uh, the more recent ones? We've got like Titan and, and Raw. Do you consider them part of this same movement or have we just moved on now to that? They're just horror films. I think, like, I think there's a connection, especially with the, the use of body horror, but I think that they are moving away from a lot of the conventions of, of the new French extremity, the kind of that fear of the other, usually that fear of like maybe an ethic, an ethnic or a sexual or racial other, a lot of that is kind of removed and also um, the kind of the home invasion motif that kind of forms part of a lot of the, uh, the new French extremity. I think, yeah, I think those are kind of maybe closer to just something else I don't know maybe maybe someone will coin a term um for you know uh more recent uh body horror um cinema but I think they're they're heading off in a in another direction cool I find it difficult to place them I think it's because of the the sort of just time frame when they've been released uh, if mm. anything else before you even start to analyze the yeah though that, now that I think about it raw has a lot in common with something like say trouble every day um which is interesting sure. but um yeah I think I, I think they're probably their own their own thing there's definitely an influence I think they're like they those films might not have existed in the way that they do without the new French extremity but you know I think we're about 20 years removed now from the high point of that genre or almost 20 years removed from that so I think you know um European horror cinema is probably morphing into something else at the moment I struggle I do struggle with it um to be all labeled under one thing but it's really convenient to do so yeah yeah I mean I think especially with the new French extremity I mean all these films were coming out at the same time and they had a, a lot of them have very similar um par you know very similar themes in terms of like I said home invasion the fear of the other body horror is a big part of a lot of them as well sort of you know um a real sort of fixation on kind of scenes of of dismemberment and torture so there are a lot of parallels and it does it does kind of help I think to have a term even if it's a term that you know is as all of these kind of critical coinages are, you know, a bit problematic. I found this or discovered this whole thing via just the constant recommendations of martyrs. Um, oh, so amazing. I watched it and within first watch, I gave it 10 out of 10. I can't believe what I'm watching on screen. I just, oh, it it's an amazing incredible. film. It really tingles. is. Um, me too, me too. And just like, oh my God even though it's a film that centers around torture I mean it's a film about torture um which a lot of new French extremity films are actually weirdly enough but it's, it's a film about torture but I think the kind of the heart of that film is the the friendship between the two girls like that's really the emotional core of the film and that is just that's so moving um and then the film itself is and then the, the film itself is just it's just fascinating. Like, I, I, I don't want to I don't want to say too much because I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen it because it goes to some really interesting places. But it's an it's an incredible film. I absolutely love it. I think, you know, everyone should watch it. And, you know, it, it's like it has a represent it has a reputation for being gruesome. And in places it's hard to watch. But I, I do think that as with a lot of those these films, I think their reputations are perhaps a little bit exaggerated. Like there are gruesome scenes, but I, they're integral to what's going on in the film and you know 
I love a film that is one step ahead of me at all yeah. times, and this yeah. one really is. You never quite catch up until the end. And oh, my God. You're going to dig through everything you've seen. There's only yeah. a few films I watched uh, straight away again after I've watched it yeah. the first time, and that was one. So. Oh, God, it's an amazing film. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's visceral. I think, like, the word visceral, you know, was coined specifically for that film. Even yeah, though, uh, yeah uh, easily and and one one day we will be talking about that and I, I hope you will come back for that oh I will I have lots to say so with that my number the number two film in this list that I read was Inside and I just thought mm-hmm. it cannot be anywhere near as good as Martyrs it can't be anywhere near as good and then I watched it and the same thing happened, but for different reasons. I just got yeah. incredibly excited about everything. I just realised how good cinema could be. Again, how visceral things could be. Trying to piece together everything after that ending. I was so excited. What was your first experience with this one, Mike? Oh, gosh. I can't remember when I first saw it, actually. It was probably a couple of years ago. I, I, I tend to get, like, on, you know, on kicks for, like, various genres or directors. So if I see something... Uh, I will then go and seek out all of the examples of the genre or all of the works by that director. Um, so I probably had a new French extremity kick a couple of years ago. Um, so I probably saw it as part of that. But it is, it's an intense film. Like it is, yeah, I mean, it is absolutely amazing. Again, um, I, I wouldn't put it on the same level as Martyrs, um, but I think it is, such an engaging and such an interesting film and I think that there's a lot going on both within like the actual the text of the film but also kind of within the subtext around it as well so I find it I find it to be a really really interesting film. The two leads I think that this film works so well because of that casting decision. Beatrice Dahl carries a lot of weight, a lot of history with what she's previously been in. And watching her in this, I recognised her instantly. She's amazing. I was just dead excited. But to see what she goes through, and also Alison Paradis, is that it, or Paradis? I think it's probably parody, but I my French is not good. Um, I haven't done French in secondary school, so... Um, Apologies to my secondary school French teacher for all of the words I will be butchering um, over the course of this podcast. But I mean, I think they're they're both amazing because I mean, yeah, certainly the thing that for for film fans, I think the thing that kind of initially gets them excited is the the presence of Beatrice Dahl. Like she's oh she's she's an amazing actress. She's in Trouble Every Day, which which I mentioned earlier. I love that movie. She's amazing in that. One of the more recent things I saw her in was Lux Eterna, which is the the more recent uh, Gaspar Noé oh, thing. Wow. And she just plays herself. Um, just okay. giving out yeah and she just spends the time her time basically giving out about being victimized by like sexist directors and like some of the humiliating roles she's had to play in films and she's great like just playing herself she's amazing I like she is just an incredibly magnetic actress and she's very good in horror because she exudes menace uh, she's very unsettling which I really like as well but then the fact that Alison Paradis is able to like hold her own against Beatrice Dahl and play opposite her like that's that's incredible I mean I I was you know the first time I saw it I I saw it after I saw Trouble Every Day so I was kind of expecting it to be like the Beatrice Dahl show but like actually Alison Paradis is amazing and the way like 
the things she conveys, especially early in the film before we get to like the scary home invasion part, you know, I think the way she's able to very subtly convey certain things, like her character is in a really, really difficult position. You know, she is, she's about to give birth. She's going to be taken into hospital the next day, which is Christmas day, hence the Christmas movie connection. to, yep, to be induced. Um, so like, there's got to be like a weird, there, there's got to be some weird Christian symbolism there where her baby is going to be born on Christmas Day and all of that. But, right. um, but she's in a really difficult position because, you know, she had a partner, she was in love, they were going to start a family. And she was obviously happy to be to be pregnant and to be about to become a mother in that scenario. But then her husband is killed or partner is killed. And suddenly she's in a whole new scenario where she has to raise or where she's in it where she's going to be raising her baby alone once she gives birth in this you know depressed grief-ridden state and suddenly she doesn't seem as happy to be pregnant and she doesn't seem as excited to be a mother and the way um Alison Paradis expresses that you know just in her in her movements and in her looks in these very very subtle ways that you know um I just I, I think yeah. she, she's really amazing she's you know she's understated and you know as, well in the first part of the film anyway um and I think she's she's really amazing the conversations with her mother are where her whole character is just laid out for us we can we can tell and it's so well acted I think I would hate to watch this dubbed um, because you will lose that nuance of the yeah. inflection of her voice. But yeah, so absolutely. I, I didn't watch it dubbed. Um, I don't know if you can actually watch it dubbed, but um, I watched it in French with my with my subtitles because again, I do not un- I, I do not speak French. <laughs> yes. But she's she's incredible, and like there's there's one scene where she's sitting in the hospital and this nurse comes over to her and like starts talking to her and she's like oh you don't have long soon and she's like I've had so many children and I've you know she then she starts smoking which you know (laughs) uh, is kind which is kind of hilarious I was just gonna say it's very French like the the French will smoke anywhere but um like just I find that scene really interesting um just as a I don't know if I'm moving away from talking about the actress now to kind of no, talk no, good. about the te- the themes but like I okay so I don't have kids and I have like the maternal instincts of a cactus so you know <laughs> I'm not like at all uh, versed I, like in these things at all but there's definitely things I've from what I've read and from what I've heard from friends of mine who have been pregnant that there's this kind of sense that like pregnant women's bodies are public space so like random strangers will come up to them and like try to touch them and try to start conversations and like ask them about you know the baby and like is it a boy or a girl and what is it going to be called and like you're from like what people have said basically your privacy is just eroded completely and I, I just I always thought that would be so horrible and so uncomfortable and so unpleasant um, and just kind of like a violation as well. And you have that obviously in that scene where this woman just, you know, comes up to her as if, you know, her body is public property and open for conversation. But then on top of that, you have her grief as well, which is just compounding everything. So she's not happy to be in the situation. She's not overjoyed to be on the verge of becoming a mother. And, but you have all these like, people poking their noses in and asking her questions and you know basically kind of suggesting that she should be happy and excited when she's in a in a really really difficult position it's really sad because 
as an audience member watching a horror film, we know that things are only going to get worse. But for her at that moment, when she walks through her door and there's no Christmas decorations up, there's no pressure, except tomorrow she'll deal with that. Right now, she's just alone and can finally be with herself. As the audience, we know, oh no. This is going you're to not yeah you're not going to get that and that's interesting as well because we're thinking we're thinking about the film as like as a Christmas film um and like that's the context we're looking at it in but really the only kind of the only reason we know it's Christmas I think is that it's referenced that the next day is going to be Christmas day and I think yeah. that like it'll be harder to get a taxi and things like that um she mentions the fact that you know friends and family will be having Christmas dinner her mother asks her if she wants to like spend Christmas Eve together but like most of the references to Christmas are kind of verbal I think at one point you see like the neighbor's Christmas lights or something but it's just so interesting that Christmas is there and it's kind of surrounding her in terms of what's going on but obviously again she's in this really awful position having just lost her partner so Christmas is kind of it's there but it's like it's removed from her she's just alone with her grief yeah 100% and that's that's a great setup right that is a great setup until we get the knock at the door and that's when the film really kicks off. And there is a moment in this, which I really love because neither of the leads here are portrayed as sex objects at any time, No, which is such a refreshing, refreshing take. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I do have to say, I think that's one thing that I find interesting about the, the French new extremity. A lot of the, the time, it doesn't sexualize women unnecessarily. You know, even thinking of things like martyrs. I mean, there was a sex uh, sexual element in trouble every day because, um, you know, Beatrice right. Dahl's character is this kind of vampiric um, creature and there, there's always a kind of sex thing to that. Um, or like even something like high tension, female characters tend not to be as sexualized in, um, in a, not everything, obviously I'm kind of, I'm generalizing, but I think it, it's an interesting thing with with the genre. I think. What do you make of the moment the uh, the camera pans and we see Beatrice Dahl? Um, she is lit up purely with a, a lighter that's lighting a cigarette. <sighs> yeah, it's crazy. That's amazing. I actually really, I, I like, I think the costuming for Beatrice Dahl in this movie is incredible, by the way, because the first time we see her and she's like, she lights the cigarette and she kind of lights up. You can see she's wearing all black. She's wearing something long and black. And she's also wearing like black gloves at the start. Mm-hmm. And I, so I think there's like kind of a Jallo thing going right, on yes. there where she, she looks like a Jallo villain, you know, the black and the gloves. But then once you actually get her into like the light and you see her properly she's wearing this really weird like I don't know almost like medieval black dress with a corset and it's I, it's so interesting it looked a little bit like a Cenobite from Hellraiser That's yeah actually yeah or like a witch or something and I just mm-hmm. I thought that costuming was really interesting because I, don't, I mean like why would you wear that when <laughs> when you're going to someone's house to murder them and steal their you know their baby like it's, it's a really weird choice, but it gives her this kind of like, initially a kind of weird like jalo menace with the gloves and stuff and the silhouette. But then once you actually see what she's wearing, like kind of a witchiness that I think is sort of interesting and, and kind of unsettling as well. And then actually the more I think about it, the more that's there. Cause there's even the scene where, you know, the cat comes up to her and it's purring and then she, she kills the cat, um, oh, yeah. which I hate that scene. Um, but th- oh. there is kind of like a strange kind of witchiness to her that I find interesting. I mean, coming from martyrs to this, I was expecting 
her to be like an anti-hero and that something would twist a bit later on and everything would then make a different sense that we're not yet aware of mm. and when that didn't happen uh, initially I felt a little bit disappointed with it until everything was really ramping up mm -hmm. um, I still thought it might come but when I realized what this film actually was I was okay I was okay with that like I don't want things to be a carbon copy of something else I do want yeah something, and it is it is yeah but I honestly thought that she would be the one we'd end up root, be rooting for, and it was Yeah, but no, I mean, I, like, yeah, she's she's pretty much terrifying the entire film, and like, she she like she is given, I think, you know, interesting motivations in that you know she was in the same crash and her unborn child was killed, and that's you know I think that's an interesting motivation. It does maybe render her a bit more sympathetic, but she is just like she's so single-minded and so brutal in her actions that even though we might maybe, you know, sympathize a little bit with her motivations, it, it's definitely hard to get behind her. I mean, for me, it's probably hard to get behind her because she killed a cat. And for me, that's unforgivable. You know, you're never coming back from, from that. Set the line. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know what? You know, you can murder all the people you want, but you know, when you come for the cat, um, that that's a that's a line um but like yeah so she she's kind of an, she's interesting she's really just terrifying and almost like a force of nature there's almost something kind of supernatural to her for a lot of the film the way she just she's so determined and she just keeps moving and she keeps going um you know it's it's yeah. it's really you know a kind of a bit like a slasher villain you know kind of in the tradition of you know Michael Myers and Jason that you know no matter what you do to her she keeps coming back and in the end you know um Sarah basically sets her on fire and you know she's yes. still ticking well that, that's the thing she seems like this indestructible like you say like a slasher villain at certain points but there is certain moments in the film which really make me bond with it so strongly and it's because some of her reactions I would say actually all of her reactions when things don't go her way feel real they don't yeah. lie to us like she gets frustrated she kicks out kicks the door she yeah. gets rid of all that negative energy yeah uh, and you don't see that with like Jason or, or that's true know, yeah you you're right and yeah you do you get those little moments of anger and frustration and you know because she's not a supernatural woman she's not a supernatural being ultimately she's just a you know a very unwell person um which i think yeah. you know um but like you know i think kind of going back to that that first scene as well you know when you see, even before you see her lit up with a cigarette when she comes and knocks on the door and she's asking, you know, can I use your phone? And then she indicates that she knows Sarah's name and what happened to her husband. It's such an unsettling moment. And that's like, it's, it's interesting because that's such a thing with the, the new French extremity, that idea of like someone invading your home. Um, it seems to be like a real critical anxiety um, in films, you know, from that period and of that, you know, of that, um, you know, French films of that period. Uh, but there's just something so unsettling about the idea of someone showing up at your door and knowing who you are. And when the police do turn up and they give you a loose explanation, oh, the, the name's written on the doorbell. And yeah. Things like that, I don't buy it. As yeah, because she knew, yeah, because also she knew that her husband was, or her partner was dead. So, um, like, obviously she has been watching her, which is, which is really really unsettling um and but I love kind of you know just kind of thinking about the police in that film even though they're kind of terrible because you know 
Yes. No, but like towards the end where the officer brings your man into the house with him, like basically tied to him. I'm like, and your and uh, and the kid is like, you know, this is a violation of my rights. And I think that seems meant to be kind of funny, but I was kind of sitting there going, I'm pretty sure that's a violation of his rights. Yeah. Like in any country. <laughs> like it's, it's you know, they're not great, but I there's something also kind of awful about the moments where the police show up because they're and you get this sometimes in in horror films and particularly like home invasion films where there's like this glimpse of hope and this possibility that someone might be able to help her and then it's snatched away and that just keeps happening over the film you know her 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 boss comes and then her mother comes and Uh. there's that constant like oh you know someone is here they might be able to help her there's a glimmer of hope and we keep getting these like little moments of hope throughout the film and then they're just snatched away yeah, that's that's the thing. I think we should dip into what doesn't really work with this film in a moment. Mm-hmm. I just want to know how you feel about the violence in this one. This is the last thing I really took from this film that I loved. I love that it's unflinching. Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of people that have seen this film and I've spoken with, they find it too much. Where do you stand on it? Uh, I don't think it's too much. Um, I I would agree with you. I would say that it's unflinching. I think it's a, it's a really interesting film, actually, in terms of sort of what's going on contextually as well, because it seems to, it's set during a period when there were riots going on in the you know the Ban Louis, the the suburbs of Paris, sure. which are mostly inhabited by you know migrants and um, and the poor, um, and there are all the and the context for the film, this, this this did actually happen around the time the film was made, but the context for the film is that there's violence erupting in these impoverished parts of Paris and you have characters, but you have characters like Sarah who, yeah, she's a journal or she's a photographer and she was photographing the riots, but she can, at the end of the day, retreat to her nice, comfortable, incredibly beige um, middle-class home and be safe. You know, if she calls the police, they will come and protect her or try to protect her because she is a nice middle-class white lady um so it's a it's a film that has a lot of violence at its core but the central characters by virtue of their you know their class and their race are largely distanced from and safe from the violence but it's interesting then that despite that violence nevertheless comes to to sarah's home and I, i think that's what goes that's what's going on with a lot of the the, French, the new French extremity films with the, with that deal with the whole home invasion thing. Um, I think a lot of it is a way of sort of processing all of the violence in French society, particularly with regard to things like race and class and colonialism, that people feel that they're distanced from and that they're safe from by virtue of their own class and by virtue of their whiteness. And then it comes to the door anyway. And I think that's that's really interesting. Um, to see someone like Sarah, who is so removed from the violence, who encounter who encounters violence through her job, but can retreat to a very comfortable, safe place, but nevertheless, it it, it comes to her home anyway. It, it finds her anyway. So I, I I do find it really interesting, and I mean, it is it's it's gruesome and it's it's unflinching, but I think it's sort of necessary within the context of the film as well. I mean, the, the film's 80 minutes long. It gets a lot going on in that frame, uh, of that running time. It's incredible what, what is in there. I think I've just had a thought that perhaps it was because the female mates that I've had this conversation with, they have children. And uh, maybe it's different for them because... I bet it is. Belly button attacks and things oh, like Jesus, that. Oh, Jesus, yeah, it is. I mean, 
like I can't again you know going back to the whole having zero maternal instinct Mm -hmm. like I I can't imagine the sense of vulnerability that women must experience um, in the later stages of pregnancy or during pregnancy in general you know um, and you know while caring for infants like I, I can't imagine how you know how vulnerable a person must feel in that situation so I'd imagine it's very very different for women who have been pregnant and who have children that it is sort of a more painful film to watch because I am like I'm watching it on a very sort of not like academic but I like I have a, I have a distance from it you know um so I think it's probably easier for me to process um from that from that point of view but it is it's it's a gruesome it is a gruesome film um but I don't think it's it's violence is necessarily exploitative either I think it it fits in with what's going on in the film I mean Beatrice Dahl her whole plan is to basically rip the child out of Sarah and steal it I mean and this is a you probably read about this this is a thing that's happened like there have been cases where oh no this has happened there are a couple of cases where this has happened where oh no uh, yeah, where, you know, women, often women who have, like, lost children or lost pregnancies of their own um, have basically done this, have, like, taken uh, an unborn child from someone else in the, the latter stages of pregnancy. So, like, this has happened, like, not a lot, but it there are cases of this happening. So, but just kind of within the context of that and within the context of what Beatrice Dahl's character is doing, there's no way that it couldn't be gruesome. There's no way that it couldn't be, you know, visceral and violent. I mean, I mean, yes, it's, it's so much that, as I say, the end of my first watch, it, I was just discombobulated. There was so much going on in my head. It was so exciting. It was mm-hmm. so much to go through in such a short, short space of time that mm-hmm. I, it was one of those films that is so rare to come by where I was just like buzzing, literally buzzing yeah. after watching it, which is great. Of course, though, there are things with this one that make it not as good as Martyrs for me. Mm-hmm. It's not a 10 out of 10. I give this one a high eight or, or maybe mm-hmm. nine. And I just want to run my sort of negatives by you to see okay. what you think. Okay. Go on, go on. Now, the first one is really pedantic, but I'm going to say it. It is set against that backdrop of the French riots. But yeah. the timeline is wrong. Those riots finished in November. Oh, so they shouldn't still be going on in December. Yeah, so they, uh-huh. who, who is that guy in the back of the car, you know? So, yeah. And I'm sure if you're French, you would know that going into this film. So there's that. But we can forgive that. But what I cannot forgive <laughs> is this next bit. So the police turn up, they look around, and they find nothing. And then Sarah just goes to sleep, like... She seems to be like, do you know what? Okay, the police have been round. I personally, not being pregnant, not being anything but being a man, after that would happen to me, I would not be going back to sleep that night. I would yeah. be on edge. I would. Yeah, have- I, I would have probably gotten in the car and like driven to my mom's house. I know her mother is being a pain and, you know, she wants to be yes. alone. But also like if someone is showing up at my door and basically like threatening me, I would probably just put up with the annoying mother for a night. Right. (laughs) Absolutely right, you would. Anybody would. So there's my main niggle, except the one last one that I've come up with. And this is the one that took me out of the film at a time when I really didn't want to be taken out of the film. And it was with a CGI lighter at the end with the aerosol. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it sort of already dates 
really mm -hmm. badly when I first yeah. saw it a few years back and now watching it I was just like oh do you know what? yeah it's, it, it's a bit much actually um and I will kind of agree with you um I actually hadn't noticed the thing about the riots ending in November but that was a that was a good call but um yeah I would say like I actually really like uh the way that she does that the way that Sarah does burn Beatrice Stiles character uh firstly because one thing I did want to say is that I think it's interesting that like uh, Sarah isn't just a victim like she fights back and she inflicts a lot of, of violence on right. um, on the woman as well and like that's you know you know she is like she's basically going into labor and she's fighting someone who is you yes. know who, who, who you know in her home and like she's I think she's a really interesting character in terms of her resilience because like when the film began she didn't want any of this, you know, she didn't want the child, she didn't want her family, she didn't really want anything, she just seemed like she wanted to almost lay down and die, but then over the course of the film she gets to this place where she's fighting so much to be alive that she gives herself a tracheotomy, and I think that's the hard, actually for me, the hardest scene to watch, <laughs> yes. but like, so I like that. And I do like the way that um, Beatrice Dahl's character gets burned because I think she ends up with this kind of like witch, like, you know, I mentioned she was oh. kind of witchy with the dress at the beginning. Then when she gets burned, she's got this really witchy appearance, which I think is interesting. But yeah, the CGI there takes me out of it. And the other thing is the weird CGI fetus um, that they show every so often. Right. Okay. Yeah. A lot of people have problems with that. I hate that. It's just, I, <laughs> like, like, I, like, we get it. She's pregnant, but also like, it just looks really bad. Um, again, you know, it's 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 the whole like CGI dates things, especially early 2000s, you know, 2000 CGI dates things. I just I found it really weird and distracting. Um, so I, I didn't like that either. Um, so, yeah, I would say kind of the CGI generally um, I'm not a fan of um, like in terms of like other quibbles, I probably would say that police officer bringing that poor young boy into the house with him. Yes. Uh, like you could just handcuff him to the car anything like but that he's like leading him around like a dog on a lead it's ridiculous but also in a way I, I like I don't know if I'm just reading too much into it it could be just the kind of you know maybe the suggestion is that this is how the police treat like you know working class disaffected working class youths yeah. who are, like brought in for for crimes I think you know um you know it it could be, you know, kind of an allusion, to, an, an allusion to the the prejudices and the kind of just general badness of the of um, of law enforcement at times. You know, it, it could be something like that, but it's just it's such a weird thing to do, and I just I I, I don't get why he does it. On again, unless it's meant to be a comment on the sort of like unfeeling nature of the police towards you know working class migrant youth. I feel like otherwise it's just bizarre and unnecessary and i'm totally with that kid it is 100 a violation of his rights <laughs> the, the issue with it is that everything else has been written in this thing for a reason and yeah. i feel that that was written in it so we have an ending yeah. um so yeah it's i think you're probably right there it's just convenience and it didn't need to be there yeah it's just it was it was just bizarre really more than anything but <laughs> you know um so yeah I think I think those are the things that sort of that took me out of it but I think overall like it's it's a good film it's 
it's tense, uh, it's unflinching. Um, the two main characters and the two performers are just incredible. Um, like yep. their dynamic is just fascinating because for much of the film, it is just the two of them. And the way they play off of each other is incredible. I mean, they are really fantastic actresses. We both agree that this film's great. Yeah. But is it a great Christmas film? Is it oh, a great Christmas. Christmas horror? What do you think? See, that's kind of a difficult one. I chose Inside because I think it's an interesting film and that there's a and there's a lot to talk about. Yeah. Um, but I don't know how well it would function as a Christmas horror film because the the Christmas elements are minimal. They're very much on the the periphery, and I feel like the only reason it's Christmas in the film is to kind of maybe firstly isolate Sarah in that you know everyone else is off celebrating Christmas. Um, so therefore, you know, it's, it's less likely that there might be people around to hear what's going on and things like that. And then also, I think the fact that it's Christmas is interesting within the context of her grief. You know, she's lost her partner. Everyone else is celebrating. She's miserable and depressed. But other than that, the, the Christmas element doesn't really play into it, like not in the same way it would with something like, you know, Black Christmas, where, you know, visually um and i guess thematically as well you know the whole christmas thing is there um it's it's very much around the edges um though i guess if you want to see a, a good film about like being depressed at christmas inside is a good oh, one got it that's the thing aesthetically it is set for the majority of the film in that apartment and there is no christmas trees there's no santa there's no tinsel yeah. there's nothing so it is just a date but you know, it's in it's in amongst all those lists, so that's why it's here. It um, is, but I also again, I think it's interesting because I guess if you are grieving and if you are depressed, sometimes Christmas is just a date. I mean, obviously, you know, um, the the one of the other great Christmas horror films, um, Gremlins, kind of alludes to that as well. You know, where they talk yes. about the 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 immortal line well you know when some when other people are opening their presents, some people are opening their veins. <laughs> It's just like I saw that movie for the first time when I was like seven. Um, yeah. But like, Phoebe Cates, I imagine reading that line initially oh would be like, oh my word, I'm going to say this. Yeah. Okay, fine. So, fine. like, you know, Gremlins kind of does hint at the whole, like, you know, how do you deal with Christmas when you're, when you're grieving or when you're depressed? Um, but, you know, in, in Inside, um, that's less, you know, it, I don't know I, it, it's interesting like there's a weird sort of dichotomy where on the one hand it doesn't feel Christmasy and therefore I can't necessarily say it works as a Christmas horror film even though it's set on Christmas but on the other hand by the virtue of the fact that Christmas is essentially essentially neglected it works as a good film about being depressed on Christmas. I'm going to take that I'm going to take anything I can to put this in the yeah, Christmas list. You so, know and I, I, I guess maybe like you know, it instills the Christmas spirit in the viewer because no matter how shitty your Christmas is, at least Beatrice Dahl isn't coming to kill you with a needle. So, like... Well, you hope, you would hope. Yeah, never a guarantee, never a guarantee. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, like, you know, I guess I guess that's, you know, the, um, that's the, the lesson to take away, you know, in, in It's a Wonderful Life. It's that, you know, no one is poor if they are friends. In uh, With Inside, the lesson is... At least Beatrice Dahl isn't going, isn't going to show up on your at your door and try to murder you and rip out your unborn child. So, happy Christmas. <laughs> it, could, it could be worse. 
Uh, okay, well, Miranda, thank you so much. It's been even better than last time, I think. This has been great. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was it was really interesting to talk about this, and I, I want to listen to... I'll have to listen to the others as well to hear what people have been saying about the other Christmas horror movies. So the score for the first 30 minutes of this thing is very airy, uh, but it's electronic, it's ominous as well. And that section is my favourite section of the film. It's difficult to put into words when you take it away from the movie, just exactly what this sounds like. But imagine, picture yourself, <laughs> right? It sounds to me like I'm in a glider and I'm looking over a glacier, something that's just been suspended. It's always been there, suspended by time. And it's there because the ice is beginning to melt. So piece by piece, this ancient thing is beginning to crumble. Listening to this score would perfectly soundtrack that. It's composed by Francois Chanfrault. And it is particularly of note, I think, because whilst I love a soundtrack that utilises drone, this one just does it in such an offhand and frivolous manner. As I say, it sounds almost dainty when you compare it to the likes of the brilliant Hagazusa score, for instance. Um, I love this. Is it Christmassy? No, it's not. But it's unusual. It utilises drone and it freaks me the hell out. So yeah, Francois, good job. So, where can you find this? Well, I couldn't locate anything anywhere in the USA or the UK, so you're not going to be able to stream this one currently for free, but it is available for a couple of quid over at the likes of Music Magpie or wherever you can find second-hand online DVD stores. That's where I got mine. And to be honest with you, I think this could do with a big old push behind it because, for my money, it's one of the best films of the 21st century so far. We should be getting one of the big companies. I'm talking even Criterion. Like, someone should get their money behind this one because it deserves more than it's currently got. As for podcasts, Bloody In Love. They covered Inside in February 2018. That's when it was. And Two Chicks and a Horror Flick. They had their say back in December 2021. And that's it. I want to say big thanks again to Miranda Cochran for chatting with us today about Inside. And it is my number three pick for the greatest Christmas horror film of all time. This one played the festivals in 2004, but it was properly released in 2005. So in this podcast, I would always count it as a 2005 film. And of course, that's why I didn't mention it in our 2004 big hitter. It would have been very high indeed. So, 
Anyway, with this one. Uh, this movie, it embraces the weird like none other that I've ever seen before because it sets itself up in the real world. At least I think it does. We've got a main character of Mark and he does a little variety performance for the old people's home. As an entertainer, he gets paid. And when he does get paid for his performance at that care home, one of the carers that's going to pay him leaves a load of nudie pics of herself in his pay packet. And from here on in, there is loads that we do talk about in a chat, but there's a few bits that we don't, so I just want to mention them. When Mark's van breaks down, an innkeeper called Mr. Bartell, he says that he's going to try and fix the van himself. And he lets himself into that van, he snoops around, he steals his phone, and also he goes for the pictures of the pay packet. The money just doesn't interest him, he throws it to the side. And then the innkeeper just will not let Mark leave. Unfortunately for Mark, it's not clear, but I'm pretty sure the majority of this film happens on Christmas Eve, or maybe it's Christmas's Eve Eve. I don't know. I'm not 100%, but he wakes up alone and he sees that the phone line is dead. It's not connected at all. Then when he goes outside to confront Bartel, Bartel smashes up the van, sets it on fire, knocks him out with a battery. I presume it's a battery. We don't actually see the knockout blow which is really frustrating. And then when he comes to, Bartel has put a dress on him. He ties him up, shaves his head. Here's the thing. Bartel just seems to miss his wife so much. And we don't know if Bartel's wife left him because she died or just left him. But what he does at that moment is he claims Mark as his wife returned. Is this film ringing a bell yet? One of my favourite scenes in it is when Mark knows that everybody in this thing is insane. And he just starts crying. How do you escape a situation when normal rules do not apply? Maybe you'll find the answer in this film. It is called Calvair, a.k.a. The Ordeal. Here's your letterbox synopsis. A few days before Christmas, travelling entertainer Mark Stevens is stuck at nightfall in a remote wood in the swampy region of Liege when his van breaks down. An odd chap who's looking for a lost dog then leads Mark to a shuttered inn. Right, I'm going to welcome back to the show right now podcast regular Amber T. She is the host of Horn Blood Fire podcast. And you may remember she last spoke to us on the 1981 Big Hitter episode about the incredible movie Possession. More recently, we got in touch with her about the 1992 Big Hitter about Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. But today, though, it's Christmas. And we're going to get into that in a second. For now, if you do want to know what she's up to, head over to her Twitter account. Check out at Hornbloodfire to keep up. There is always something ace and it's always going to be horror. For now, here's our chat that took place at the end of that stinking July. Heatwave extraordinaires, myself and Amber. This is The Ordeal, a.k.a. Calvair.
So, Amber, happy Christmas. Happy Christmas, Paul. Thank you for having me again. So excited to be back in the festive season. This is the most fucked up. <laughs> this is the most <laughs> fucked up Christmas film. I, I think it's a Christmas film. We'll get there. What's your history with the ordeal? It really surprised me that I had never heard of Fabrice Duell's work before because someone, I was looking for another of his films called Alleluia, which I still haven't seen. And that was really hard to find. So in the end, I went for The Ordeal, which is easier to find. And after I watched it, I was like, holy shit, why is no one talking about this guy in the same breath as like Gaspar Noé or Lars von Trier or like even Michael Haneke, like... I think he really deserves more people talking about him. And yeah, my experience with this film, I was like, what the fuck? Why am I so unhappy? It is a Christmas film because mm -hmm. that's when it's set and that, that's the criteria. Before we go into it, I just want to know, is this the sort of thing that you would watch at Christmas? Do you have a list of Christmas films that you hit? Um, or is it just, I just horror all the time, don't care what? Uh, Christmas is the one time in the year that I give myself a break. Um, I'm a big, like, sappy, like, Christmas childish way. I like to watch Home Alone, Love Actually, um, The Holiday with Cameron Diaz and Jude Law. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, go, I go, like, full rom-com only at Christmas, and then it's back to it. Although I do... There are two horror movies I do watch at Christmas. One is Jacob's Ladder, um, because that's also a Christmas film. And the other You're is Jewel. Right. It is, right? There's a Santa Claus yeah. in it, and it takes place around Christmas. At least a part of it does. Um, and the second film is a part of the Juan franchise called Juan White Ghost, which is set around Christmas, and it has a Christmas cake in it. So those are my only two horrors. Everything else is like Jingle Bells, Jingle Bells, Cute Fairy Lights, and Gingerbread Cookies. Is that Juan one any good? Nope. <laughs> um no it it's 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 okay it's pretty standard j horror it's about an hour long it's got you know croaking ladies with black hair over their face um but it does have a great scene with a christmas cake in it which is why i like to watch it at christmas right well i'm in I, i've now got to readjust this list and and, and that in, <laughs> that's for sure it's okay um, i'll come on and do that one too so, as I say, Ordeal for me would fit nicely in there, but I wouldn't watch this with my other Christmas films that I like to watch. I've got a set few, like you, as always Home Alone. Since mm. Trump, uh, I don't I don't go to the sequel any longer. Yeah, that's hard work, Man. isn't it? Oh, so I, 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 but it's gotten because I, I love that film as well. Mm -hmm. um, there needs to be a non-Trump edit. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> the Trump free cut. <laughs> If you wouldn't mind sorting that out for us, please, Amber. <laughs> I'd love that. Yeah, I I, I love it. If from December the 1st, I'm all Christmas. House is Christmas up. Much like yourself, I don't care what I'm watching. I, I just want to get into that spirit. But this film, it does put the main character and you as the viewer through it. Like, really mm. does. There just seems to be no let up from scene one onwards. Now... The whole setup to this, like, I really like it. I like that we're setting up what's going on with him because he is a entertainer on mm -hmm. old people's home, and it's a regular job for him. And he gets treated oddly by the patrons and also the the staff. How do you feel about the intro to the film? So, within like the first five minutes, Mark is sexually assaulted. Um, 
by one of the older women who grabs his hand and, you know, puts it on her. Mm-hmm. And then in the next scene, he is, you know, accosted again by another woman. So I think from the get-go, it's already clear that people think they can take whatever they want from Mark just because he's in the public eye. And, you know, it's this whole thing about celebrity culture and how much, you know, celebrities quote-unquote owe us. Hint, they don't owe us anything. They're human beings. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, already from the start, we see that people are trying to hurt Mark in very unpleasant ways. And he doesn't really know how to deal with that. Yeah, society will, you know, dictate how he should act. And he acts in the way that polite society would expect him to act Mm -hmm. in that situation. And it's a real strange kickoff to a film that just escalates this as we go from scene to scene. Now, it is set in a rather strange, odd place after that. But I need to ask you about this guy asking for his dog, Bella. Oh, my God. (laughs) Because this chap is really strange. And he's your first contact with this sort of village, this surrounding area. And things are off from the start. Now, Mm -hmm. do you actually, because when he breaks, he sees something dart out in front of him. Do you think that is actually his dog, Bella? I don't know if there even is a dog. Um, you know, the dog the, the dog shows up at the end and it is a cow. Um, <laughs> yep. I think this, this you know, this village of, of men are so, so isolated. They've all gone completely batshit insane. They see things, you know, they see a dog cow is a dog a man is a woman you know they don't see things how they actually are they've all gone completely bonkers because they have been stuck you know in this claustrophobic countryside and being from cornwall like i can relate honestly (laughs) 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 i can feel the emails wow there Um, yeah I, i agree like when you are that rural and you go on a walk and you come across something that's odd just like in that film men mm-hmm. like you know when you come across an odd thing you don't want to you d- you want to give it the benefit of the d- the doubt you want to mm-hmm. be able to em- embrace but my instinct is to to turn around and run just like when he accosts the group um having sex with farm animals oh my god yeah yeah when he goes for a little wander and he he sees that like you know you're in a weird film at that point what did you think i thought i was in for a sort of like a, a hillbilly sort of type of film that you would get from from the americas rather than mm-hmm. what we end up do getting like and i've entitled this little bit embracing the weird because everything from here on is weird how do you feel about that walk and when he actually sees these people i mean it is <sighs> Something I saw people say about this movie, which I don't agree with, they were like, oh, it's it's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but boring, or it's Deliverance, but boring. I was like, okay, hang on, just because it doesn't go all out, you know, fury like those films do, doesn't mean that it's not horrifying and very, very fucking weird. The, the weirdness is just, it's subtler, it's more uncanny, you know, it's not Leatherface running around, it's a group of men standing up and awkwardly dancing in a pub, um which is one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. But it's it's so 
I think the thing about Calvert, the ordeal, is it's so awful that it becomes absurd. It's it's like this very black humor that only Europeans can do well. I think it's completely deranged to the point where it starts to become funny because if you didn't laugh at how weird it was, you would start crying like straight up. It the escalation trickles in bit by bit. Like instantly, I know that when he's on the phone. Um, trying to call for a repair van for Mark's vehicle uh, that seems to have broken down. Like, I know he's not. I know that that's not connected. I know he's Yeah, there's no on the one phone. on the other end. No way. Like, with, anyone that's watched a horror film knows that that's the case. But it's the other little things that start peppering in. Like, the way he rummaged through the van when he said, I'm going to help. You go for your walk. I'll, I'll, I'll mm-hmm. try and fix the van. And he's having a little rummage through himself. Or when at the dinner table... Because they're both being entertainers, he says, "Oh, can you sing? I've told you my joke. Can oh, you his sing?" Joke. Oh my god! Yeah, <sighs> yeah. <laughs> the joke and the singing. I think. Yeah. Like, the, it's touching. I think the singing, and I and I really feel for him at that time because I just yeah. feel like if you didn't do that, like, how's this guy going to react? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Mark is a very sympathetic character, and I do feel very, very bad for him because he he doesn't, you know, he doesn't really know how to put boundaries up and stick up for himself you know as we see in the first five minutes he's already got people taking advantage of him and you know if that guy told me to sing at the table i would just i would be like no fuck off i'm going to bed leave me alone but he's a nice person and um you know a very interesting part of this film is the gender dynamic is which plays into it as well which very much comes into play later but it's it's a lot about how men treat women um as a, you know not not all men <laughs> not, but you know he the the man the oh, i can't remember his name Bart, bartel thinks yeah, he can bartel. take whatever bartel thinks he can take whatever he wants from mark and mark does because mark is scared of what will happen if he doesn't and i think that's a situation that a lot of women can definitely relate to and that's why i think the gender dynamics in this film are very very interesting cuz it holds a mirror up to how a lot of men's worst nightmare is to be treated how men treat women, if that makes sense. It does. And and which brings me to this thought is where are the women in this? If we're taking this film as is and not for the whole thing being metaphor, mm-hmm. like where are the women in this town? Where Where is any w- woman here? Well, there are two women in the town and they are both animals. There is the pig... And there is the dog, Bella, who is presumably like a girl dog. So, right. yeah, the only women in this town are animals, um, which obviously speaks for itself. But, yeah, I don't know what happened. Did they just have enough one day and walk out? Did they, did the men, more likely the men killed them or did unspeakable things to them? Um, I'm not sure. I would like to, I would probably not like to know, actually. <laughs> Well, that's the great thing. I love that it's not answered. I, mm-hmm. I love that we have to think, did they all run away? Did they get away in time from this and see mm-hmm. it escalating out of control? Or was it too late for them? Are they all under that, that bar, that pub? You know, Are they all under, yeah. the, under the floorboards? Um, yeah, which brings me to the dance. So there is a scene before things go really, really bad. I mean, they're they're pretty bad already at this point. When we get to the dance scene, I think isn't Mark already tied up? I think he is, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, Mark he's being tied up and shaved. Yeah. yeah, 
Mm-hmm. So he's already like, oh no, I'm in a pretty bad situation here. And then as a warning to the rest of the villagers, <laughs> yeah, I love this. He works so, oh, what's his name? Bart. Bartel, Bartel. Bartel, yes. Bartel goes to the bar uh, or to a cafe. It looks like a cafe, but he goes there. They serve drink. Uh, he's They're reluctant to serve him, but they do. And then he warns them all off, leave my wife alone. And then, then leaves. And then what we're left with is my favourite piece of cinema I've seen this, uh, well, this millennia so far. When I first saw this, I rented it from Blockbuster and I had no idea. I always remembered that scene, but for years afterwards, I was like, what is that? What was mm-hmm. that film? And eventually I asked, because uh, Mark Commode did that thing where it was like, if you think of a bit of a film... Oh, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he told me, and that was good. Because <gasps> I was like, oh! Enlightened. Man. Enlightened by Commode. <laughs> thank you, Mr. Commode. So, yes, thanks for that. But, yes, yeah, so there we go. That was the bit that I'd always been like, oh, what was that? And I used to show people the dance. Mm-hmm. And, I, and they'd be like, all right, Paul. Yeah. What <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's, he's showing us the dance again, guys. Time to leave. <laughs> no, I, I loved it. It made me feel sick. Um because it's so horrible it is so the discordant music that it's out of tune it's in you know the, the way the men stand up and they're like like zombies like stiffly move it's like they've forgotten how to be human like they they physically no longer know how to interact with other human beings unless it's violent you know presumably all the men in this village all they want to do is kill and rape women that come in that's why they're so excited about gloria um so they've completely forgotten how to interact with other people and dance you know with their friends um and it's almost like you know i don't like it when people throw the word lynchian around for everything but this scene is quite lynchian i mean there's a scene in twin peaks i think it's season uh the end of season one where Leland starts dancing obsessively and singing and going up to anyone who'll have him and being like, please dance with me, please. It's just like this manic, out of control, unnatural expression of emotion. Now, what emotion it is, I'm not sure. I have some pretty nasty thoughts about why they're dancing, um, but they could they could just be dancing. When the, the, the camera pans to the actual fingers on the piano keys, it also shows you the floor, and the floor is grimy, it's dirty. The whole place is horrible. If you look on the glass uh, beers that they, they pull out, um, they, they're caked in mud at the bottom. Mm-hmm. So this is Filth. just a real grimy, horrible place that nobody's been looking after themselves there at all. Mm. And like even earlier on, you mentioned like how they've forgotten to, to act. Uh, when the bestiality is going on, one of the guys is doing that little dance again, just to himself because yeah. he's so excited. It's it's it all of a sudden brings you into like you say that Lynchian thing. Like I remember watching, uh, I can't remember which Lynch film it was now. I think it was Mulholland <laughs> Drive with the cowboy hat man. Oh yeah yeah yeah, the cowboy yeah. Uh huh. And the, yeah. the just what he says, it just was like oh, that was amazing. And you mm. know when you just want to rewatch a scene and rewatch yeah. a scene. It's like that, and I have watched. I will not fib to you. Somebody has taken it out of context on YouTube, and I would say of those thousands of views, hundred of them would be mine. <laughs> I love that. 
because it's so short as well like and it, it never they never refer back to it it's just it just happens and then it doesn't happen again um and it's so so out of tone for the the rest of and the previous amount of the movie where well it's not out of tone because it's still horrible but you know it's it's exultion it's celebration you know finally there's a woman in the village that we can kill and rape and yeah that's oh it's God. just horrible oh, what a film yeah happy christmas yeah, yeah happy christmas <laughs> uh, speaking of christmas i i don't know if i'm reaching here but there is quite a strong jesus metaphor um and I don't know if you clocked it when you because I because I didn't clock 100%. it until I thought of it. Okay, good because I didn't know if I was fully reaching. I mean, obviously there's the crucifixion, but you know he he's 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 reborn. He's he's reborn into a new person called Gloria. You know, glory to God, etc. And at the end of the movie, he forgives. Um, and if that's not Jesus, I don't know who is. I I don't know what to make of it. And it must mean a lot. And I'm thinking religion is there. And I don't know my Bible well enough to know what it is. But when the guy that's after him, that obviously had an affair with this other guy's wife at some point, mm. who is Gloria, um, but then he's actually landed himself in quicksand. And he knows mm. instantly his game's up. And all he wants to do is have a final conversation. He's put the gun down. Like, I'm not going to kill you. I just want you to acknowledge me, you know. Mm-hmm. It's it's not sad because you hate this guy and you're so happy that he's like drowning very slowly into quicksand, but at the same time, like what a way to to end your film! Like mm-hmm. it's again so dour. Like you just think that this everything that Mark's been through, this is called the ordeal. You know, is you've been put through that, and, and then it leaves you with all these questions. Like why did the director? want you to have that as your lasting memory of it. Have you got any idea of what that whole scenario means? What does it mean to you? I mean, yeah, it's it's difficult because after everything that Mark's been through, you would love to have seen him stare that guy down and be like, no, like, fuck you. I'm not going to give you the the release and the... um, Oh, what do they call it when you talk to a vicar before you die? And they absolve absolve you of your sins. Um, That's the word. But he does. And I think it's kind of almost in a way it could be a i don't really like to go into this because it's kind of a buzzword right now but a comment on cycles of abuse and cycles of violence and how perpetuating them and continuing them isn't always healthy mark has been through the possibly the worst thing a human being can be through can go through it's his choice now to either let it turn him into a mean violent vicious person which he would have every right to be or he can let it go he can take on you know this loving persona of gloria um he can take on this jesus metaphor and he can let you know love into his heart love and forgiveness um he's a better man than me to be honest um but yeah it's i think the ending is sadder for that it would have been a nice it would have been a fun ending if mark had got his revenge and blown the guy's face off but it it doesn't go that way. And, you know, it's just because it makes us happier. It might not make the director happier. It might not mm-hmm. be the vision that they had. So, you know, fair enough. Oddly, I got so much joy from watching this. When I rediscovered it, again, thank you, Mr. Mark Wade. When I when I um, saw this again, I was like, it's a straight up 9 out of 10 for me. Like, instantly. Yes, great like, I'm film. just like, 
I love it. There's two bits I want to talk about before we go. First of all, uh, a bit that I don't understand. Again, I'd love it if you did. All the kids, when he's just escaping uh, oh, yeah. for the first time, they're, and they're all dressed in red in the forest and they're just staring yeah. at Bartell as he walks by, trying to find him. What's uh, What are those kids about? I don't know. Honestly, the, the only things that came to my mind was Don't Look Now and The Brood and you know how terrifying yes. children are um but then you know the fact that they're wearing red and mark is wearing red maybe they're like future marks in a way you know if this film is talking about how violence violence is inescapable in a in a society that's so isolated are these little children doomed to present the same thing i didn't see look closely at the children i would be very interested to see if they're all male children or if there's any yeah. little girls in there too if they're all boys then i think that speaks for itself um that you know the village is just going to continue being this very strange isolated place with no women um which would be a great double feature with the lighthouse of what happens when men are left to their <laughs> oh, own devices that's an evening out <laughs> <laughs> but yeah oh, I, I i'm sorry i don't have a more concrete answer that bit confused me too and i, I like that it's so bleak and uh, you know make of it what you will right and and that's the great thing with lynch as well and just to sort of break the uh illusion of how this podcast is made so we've just previously spoken uh on an episode you would have heard months ago about firewalk with me and we talked in that film about how awesome the score was and here there's no score except for that mm. musical moment there's no score and yet i still feel incredibly uneasy do you think it could have done with a with a with a few belters here and there or or what <laughs> a few ba a few christmas bangers. Few bangers no no i i i love that it's br i'm i think any filmmaker that's brave enough to do that is it's you know it's a real feat because um, it adds to the realism of Mark's nightmare. Um, I think if there was like non-diegetic sound going through, and there is at the end, over the end credits, there is a little yeah. bit of whining, just a single vo whining violin. And that I think is perfectly placed because it's just enough to have you think, okay, this is the end of the film and I still feel like shit. Um, but yeah, that's what makes the dancing scene so great as well because this music comes out of nowhere it's so harsh it's so vile it's so discordant the rest of the film has been pretty much silent um so no i don't think i think music would have maybe cheapened the experience unless you had some kind of really weird campy christmas song playing at some point which from like someone's radio or something which might have been quite fun it's the movie speaks for itself yeah, oh, 100%. And you mentioned the crucifixion scene, and I just want to say that that's the image this time that's left me from this recent rewatch. It's so, so sad. It's so, it's so hopeless. Realize um, until I looked it up that the, the title in French, Calvaire, it also translates to cross. Um, you know, ah. crucifix. So I think that the crucifixion scene really is the crux, if you'll excuse the pun, the, the crux of the movie, because it is, it's Mark's rebirth point when he becomes, whether he wants to or not, he becomes this illusion of Gloria. Um, and he has to start, you know, this, he, he has his life before the crucifixion and now he has his life after. Mark's life is now 
irreparably separated and that is very very sad you know just him hanging there with his his red jacket on and his head shaved and his his summer dress oh it's just horrible horrible image very very terrifying well and and at least you know he did make it through and now next year maybe he can say to those women that are sexually taunting him to uh, just knock it off just let me do yeah he's had enough yeah he's mark has honestly had enough and i hope that you know whatever happens to mark next i hope he can go back to some semblance of normalcy probably not after you've been probably crucified not. i don't know i don't know we'll see we'll have to wait for calvair to um the <laughs> christmas special <laughs> very final question and again amber thank you so much for giving up your time for this would you recommend this for christmas uh, if you're having <laughs> if you're having christmas in europe maybe um i i i would recommend it for horror fans at christmas because i know that we love to go to those very unhappy very bleak and uncomfortable places and you know christmas is a very very hard time for a lot of people i know for some people the happiness and cheesiness of christmas is is pretty hard going and some people want to go to fucked up places at christmas so if that's you check out calvaire Give the ordeal a, a spin now and uh, you might find some semblance of joy in there. <laughs> oh, that is perfect to wrap up. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everybody. find this one well it's available on dvd but that's the only place where i've managed to find it and so i bought it if you want to stream it i don't think you're going to be lucky i couldn't find anywhere in the uk and i couldn't find anywhere in the us as for podcasts i'm going to give you a couple the faculty of horror podcast covers this in their september 2016 episode and may I also recommend to you Straight Chilling Pod. They covered Calvair five years later in September 2001. And that's it, my number two pick for the greatest Christmas horror film ever made is The Ordeal, a.k.a. Calvair. We last visited Gremlins on the second ever episode of A Year in Horror, part two of the 1984 episode to be exact. For that one, myself and Howard Smith from the UK thrash metal legends Acid Rain, we went into detail about Gremlins and well, if you want to hear it, scroll all the way down your device when you hit A Year in Horror, you're going to see us there. We're the ones there having a cuddle, we're sticking pesky green critters into blenders, it's a banging time can tell you you're gonna love it so with that being said why have i put gremlins at the number one pick for the greatest christmas based horror movie ever well i simply had no choice 
It was directed by Joe Dante and it was produced by Steven Spielberg and Kathleen Kennedy. Pretty big names, I guess. Dante, at the time, was hot to the touch. He was coming off the back of Piranha, The Howling and the very best segment in the Twilight Zone movie. Didn't even kill anyone on the set. His segment is called It's a Good Life and it's the one where the kid can control all his surroundings and he lures people into his house to be his family. Do you remember that? Because I think that is one of the most scary times I had watching a film as a kid. Absolutely terrifying and brilliantly done. But I tell you what, with Gremlins, I remember being gutted that it was a 15. But then I was delighted when it came out on VHS and my parents just didn't care. I think I was 12 at the time and they let me rent it out. I wasn't scared at any point when I first watched it, but I found it enthralling from the beginning to the end. As I say, go into loads of detail about this over in the 1984 episode. Uh, But the sentimental bits in this, they never grated on me because they just never overstayed their welcome. It was full of obviously pretend gore and the gremlins when they went on their rampage was as hilarious as it was frightening. For me, as a 12, maybe 13 year old, probably 12, I was just in heaven. Not a lot else to add here. It's a stone cold Christmas classic. This is Gremlins. Steven Spielberg presents Gremlins. They're clever. They're mischievous. They'll get into the kitchen. The basement, the garage, they'll get into anything. And once they get in, you're in for it. Gremlins, they'll be expecting you at a special sneak preview Saturday, May 19th. Directed by Joe Dante, rated PG. And here's your letterbox synopsis. Don't get him wet, keep him out of bright light and never feed him after midnight. When Billy Peltzer is given a strange but adorable pet named Gizmo for Christmas, he inadvertently breaks three important rules of caring for a mogwai and unleashes a horde of mischievous gremlins on a small town. Rightio, you want an MVP. I know it, you know it, here's my choice. The name is Frank Welker and... Who the bloody fuckery is this guy? I hear you rudely ask me that, and I'm going to tell you. He is the voice of Stripe. And the following list of credits is simply amazing. And they are all true. I kid you not. I treble checked. I had a look on Wiki. I had a look on IMDb. And there was this article online, uh, a piece called Behind the Voice Actors. So, yeah, grab a chair and also grab a tall, long one. Because this is a long list of credits. But... I'm going to shorten it a bit. I'm going to keep it a year in horror related. And we're going to begin with this. He voiced Katerdin in the film The Prophecy. And that was 1979. That's what kicked him off. After that, it's lunacy. You know the monkey in Raiders of the Lost Ark? That's him. I know. Bloody Spike is the Raiders monkey. It gets better. The voice of Cujo from the 1983 Stephen King adaptation? It's him. That's Frank Welker. Imagine this one. You're on the set of Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Leonard Nimoy, he's screaming, but he screams like a lifeless toddler. Sounds pathetic. Who are you going to call? Yep, you're going to call Frank. He is the screaming Spock in that film. He's also the voice of Nibbler in Futurama. He's the cat in Cat's Eye, the monster in Terrorvision, and the troll in Troll. 
He is the voice of Megatron in the 1986 animation Transformers The Movie. He is the pterodactyl chick in House 2. And get this one, Frank Welker, he is the voice of the Graboids in Tremors. Jesus Christ, this man. Tremors! He's Ella in Monkey Shines. He's the Bat in Graveyard Shift, the Easter Bunny, Station and Satan in Bill and Ted 2. And then he gets some of that filthy Disney cash by voicing a boo in Aladdin. And you know when Sil turns into an alien in Species? That's him. The bizarre sound that the aliens make in Independence Day. That's Frank. The Mars Attack Martians. That's Frank. The Anaconda from the film Anaconda. It's Frank. Is that not enough for you? Well, here's one more. He is the fucking parrot in Deep Blue Sea. Now... That is just the key horror and key science fiction movies. And treble that and you are probably there for the full amount of films in his list. As I type this, he's currently the voice of Garfield for Nickelodeon and is part of the Animaniacs team for Hulu. And if this doesn't mean that you deserve the most prestigious A Year in Horror MVP award for just those that I mentioned alone, well, there's something not right in the world. So congrats to the great Frank Welker. Jerry Goldsmith totally delivers here with perhaps not just his, but some of the most iconic themes that came out in the 80s. I would put those melodies that are on this one alongside the like of Friday the 13th scores, the Reanimator score, the Shining score, Aliens, Beetlejuice, you name it. This one, it's up there. There is a Christmas feel every now and again, but it's often deep into horror and just as often deep into comedy, just like the film is. But hundreds of soundtracks shoot for that combination, comedy and horror. Usually the horror is horrible. It's too reliant on subs and then goes for jump scares. And the comedy beats, they always veer into slapstick tropes. It's no fun for me. Regular listeners will know that it's a real bugbear of mine. And I think that lovers of both of these genres, we don't need to be smashed on the head and reminded what sort of scene we're watching. We get it. And Goldsmith's score hits that perfect sweet spot. For us science fiction and horror fans, we know that he's already been composing these mega scores, these iconic melodies for decades by now. This is the man that composed the score for Planet of the Apes, The Omen, Capricorn One, Alien, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Poltergeist, Rambo. That was him as well, for goodness sake. And then just a nail on that. He's got Gremlins. That's amazing. It's such a wonderfully appropriate and fantastical piece of work. And 
Just so you know, before he died, I personally really rate the Total Recall score and the Basic Instinct score. Uh, of course, I love that one. I'd also throw in The Mummy and Hollow Man. Those two scores, I mean, there is a bunch of these. They're really memorable pieces of soundtrack history. And for me, just like with Dante, this is peak Goldsmith. Oh man, I missed a joke. Dante's peak? Ah, oh, what am I doing? What am I doing? Anyway, this Gremlin soundtrack, it's on Spotify, so there's no excuse. Unless, of course, you don't have Spotify. That's a pretty good excuse. My advice, though, track this down however you can. Brilliant. It's brilliant. But where can you find this to watch? Well, in the UK, you can stream this one for free on Now, on Virgin, and Sky. But in the USA, it's just on HBO Max. As for podcasts, Double Impact Podcasts, they had their say on Gremlins in June 2019, and Sloppy Horror Podcast, and I've not heard this one yet, but it is in my list. They said their piece in December 2021. And that's it. That's all I've got to say right now. That is it. My number one slice of Christmas horror, it's Gremlins. It was always going to be Gremlins. It's bloody Gremlins. Radio, let's choose the year that we're going to be dealing with next month. Got my little bag. I'll shuffle it around. Oh, I'm going to pull something out. 1969. Hmm, I think 2001. No, I don't think it was. A Space Odyssey that came out in 68. Um, Pugs, do you know? Do you know? You don't. I've got no idea. So I guess all I can say is this. Feel free to contact the podcast at ayearinhorror at gmail.com with any films that you think I missed or if you simply just want to tell me what I got wrong. You can follow me at WallaNotWeller on Letterboxd and Instagram or you can hit me up at NotWellerPod on Twitter. Also on Letterboxd, I have listed all the years that we've tackled so far and I've attached all of those films to their proper positions. Don't forget about Patreon. So that is patreon.com forward slash a year in horror. The first is that £3 tier, but why not go the whole hog? Why not go to the £4 tier and then you can get all that extra content? All contributions that you make to a year in horror, they're going to be put back into making this regular, original, specialist content for you, as well as you getting that warm, fuzzy glow you get for helping me out, helping out the show. You've also got all that extra content. Have I mentioned extra content? I think I've probably mentioned all that extra content. A great, massive, big thank you will also go out now to my wife, Claire Waller, who will be doing all the Photoshop posters for each episode and also does that science fiction corner jingle and the spooky jingle. One Trick Pony designed that very cool logo and the Canada design for the thumbnail. Also, Max Newton and Lucy Foster, they did that A Year in Horror theme music. Before we go, I've got to thank also Benjamin Bowles, Brad Hansen, James Chapman, Paul Chanter, Amber T and Miranda Cochran. Uh, they were the regular podcasting guests, but we had three special guests, remember? We had author Adrian Rowe, we had director Camille Griffiths and also Brain Rot podcasting host Stevie Webb. But I must say, the most biggest 
hugest, quite ginormousest of thanks goes out to you lot for listening to this right to the very end. I'm going to see you next month for a podcast that is going to feature the best horror films that came out in 1969.